Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Air Force Judge Advocate General Schools podcast. I'm Major Aaron Davis. Today, we're excited to be teaming up with our friends in the military justice domain to bring you this update on some of the most important recent changes impacting the military justice realm. Recently, Major Jessica Delaney and Major Ryan Brunson sat down to discuss these developments and educate the Corps. So this episode will feature their conversation with each other, where they break down these developments and share with us not just some of the actual changes in law or rules, but how those impact JAGs in the courtroom and how JAGs can use this information to better serve their clients. If you are an Air Force JAG listening to this for your annual certification, please stay tuned to the end of the episode for instructions on how to certify. Here are a few clips from today's episode. Important to know is that the the SIP capability is not statutorily required like the SFIP capability. The SIP is uh, just sort of an expanded, um, expanded collaborative approach that the Air Force has decided to take. So you won't necessarily find an equivalent in the other services. And one of the ways some bases do that, which is very helpful to our director of trial operations, is sending SIRS up along with the request. So that way the directors of operations are able to see, is this a special needs case, as opposed to just receiving a notification that some sort of a 120 is going on in base. Via a memorandum from the trial counsel to the central docketing office uh, that requests that a military judge be detailed for the purposes of a 30. We need a way to, to tie our military subject to that pseudonym. So the basic subscriber information via an investigative subpoena will help us make that initial link between the pseudonym on the kick or Facebook Messenger, whatever he's using, and the individual subject. Good morning, welcome to the 2021 Military Justice Annual Refresher. I'm Major Jessica Delaney from AFJJG, and I'm joined by Major Brunson from AFJHAN. Today we're going to be talking with you about SIP, which is the Criminal Investigation and Prosecution Capability, SFIP, the Special Victims Investigation Prosecution Capability, and Investigative Processes. But before we dive into it, Major Brunson, do you mind introducing yourself to everyone? Sure. Good morning. Uh, Major Ryan Brunson from uh, Department of the Air Force JAJN, uh, Military Justice Law and Policy Division, and I'm the Chief of Military Justice uh, Policy there. Uh, prior to this assignment, I uh, did an LLM in uh, military law with an emphasis in uh, criminal justice from the Army, JAG School, and Legal Center in Charlottesville, Virginia. Prior to that, I was a, a circuit trial counsel in the Central Circuit for a couple of years. Uh, in an area defense council before that. I also started in base legal like Major Brunson, did a tour as area defense counsel before working as the executive officer for the Air Force Judiciary and appellate government counsel for three years. In my current capacity, I'm one of the CTC SVUs, one of the special victim units, CTCs, as well as the assistant director of operations in charge of the SIP program. So as we get started, let's start with sort of where this collaborative approach to investigations first began, which was with SBIP. Sure. So, Mr. Brunson, where did that come from? Sure. So originally, the uh, SBIP capability uh, was a uh, congressionally mandated requirement from the 2013 NDAA, uh, and it, it, it first appeared in the Air Force instruction in AF, uh, AFI 51201 as early as 2015. Uh, and since then, the program has only gotten more uh, enhanced and robust. Uh, and now you can find the current guidance uh, for the SBIP capability in, in Chapter 22 of uh, DAFI 51201. 
And sort of the goal of SBIP is to ensure collaboration between all of the partners in our special victims investigations. So our military criminal investigating officers, our MCIOs, which is going to be OSI for most of SBIP cases, as well as the base legal office, senior prosecutors, DWAP personnel, and then ensuring that there's coordination with the SAPR program, SBCs, domestic uh, abuse victim advocates or victim advocates. But those are sort of all the partners who are the actual required members on an SBIP team. Right. So if you look at, uh, again, at Chapter 22 of BAPI 51201, you're going to you're going to find that the four required members of a SDIP team are um, and these are folks that have to have special qualifications and, and enhanced training. But that's going to be your investigator uh, from the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, a, um, a judge advocate who's qualified and certified um, and then a uh, circuit trial counsel who is SVU uh, qualified and also a seven-level paralegal. So that's our SBIP team. And SBIP now in the Air Force actually falls within a more broad capability, so a more broad collaborative team. And that's what I referred to earlier as the criminal investigations and prosecution right. capability, SIP. So Major Brunson, where can people find out about the SIP capability? Sure, so if you wanna look at the actual requirements for the SIP capability, that's also gonna be found in, in chapter 22, or section 22 of uh, AFI 51201, uh, and that details the sort of expanded SIP capability. And what's important to know is that the, the SIP capability is not statutorily required like the SIP capability. The SIP is uh, just sort of an expanded, um, expanded collaborative approach that the Air Force has decided to take, so you won't necessarily find an equivalent in the other services. Uh, and think, the thing about SIP is that it's just across the board, so it's going to apply to all of your criminal investigations and prosecutions. So, Major Brunson, who are the personnel involved on the SIP team? Right. So, your SIP team is uh, it's sort of easy to uh, remember because it's just going to be sort of a scaled-down version uh, with fewer requirements for your SIP team. So, same folks, just not necessarily the, the same uh, level of training or uh, enhanced um, uh, capabilities there. So. Your SIP team is going to be composed of a base level trial counsel, whether or not that person is qualified and certified, a base level paralegal who does not have to be at any certain uh, level, five level, seven level, just any paralegal at the base level, a uh, circuit trial counsel who does not have to be yet SVU qualified, and then of course your OSI or SFOI investigator who's actually assigned to that case. Now, some SIP cases can also involve victims or a large number of witnesses. So every SIP team is not going to use VWAP personnel, right? So if it's a, a naked urinalysis or a drug case, you may not need VWAP personnel involved. But if the SIP investigation does include any victims or witness, you'll also have your VWAP personnel. Sure. sure. Now we've talked about the different personnel required for SBIP and SIP. What sort of offenses require the SBIP capability? Right. So the SBIP capability, uh, according to the regulations, um, and again, refer to Section 22 of DAPI 51201, but that's going to involve um, intuitively what you would think it would involve. So your, your sex assault cases, your domestic uh, violence cases, your aggravated assault cases, uh, and then even cases that are serious that are not necessarily uh, listed in the regulation and, and murder comes to mind. Uh, murder is not actually part of uh, what's required uh, to have an SBIP team assigned, but you're normally going to do it for that kind of case. Right. So as Major Brunson pointed out, special victims, uh, the SBIP capability can be used in any case that uses a victim. It is, however, required in three specific 
scenarios. So adult sexual assault, child abuse that involves child sex assault or aggravated assault, and domestic violence, aggravated assault, or uh, sexual assault cases. So there could be some aggravated assault cases that do not require the SDIP capability, but in which you're certainly able to utilize that capability. So when do these teams first become capable? What triggers the capability? Sure, so there are essentially three um, events that can trigger the requirements to, to compose that SIP or SDIP team. And that's going to be uh, when your military law enforcement agency gets a report of an offense. So a report of offense comes to SFOI or OSI, that's gonna trigger that uh, requirement. Uh, the second can be if a non-military law enforcement agency uh, gets a report of, of a crime and then transfers the investigation from the civilian authority to the military authority. And then third would be a situation where the Air Force requests and obtains jurisdiction over a uh, case that's already in progress. So we've sort of talked about how this capability came to be and how the teams are composed, but let's actually talk about what it is that that team does during the investigation and potentially during the prosecution of an offense. So, Major Brunson, we talked about it being a collaborative intent, but really, what is the intent of the SIP team or SFIP team? Sure. So, um, it's sort of what the name suggests, right? So, a combined investigation and, and prosecution uh, capability is, the ultimate goal is to sort of create a, a synergy of our military uh, law enforcement capabilities and our military legal capabilities. And the goal is to produce better investigations on the front end and better prosecutions on the back end. And uh, sort of the idea there is that, you know, if we can if we can integrate legal into investigations on the front end, and that's an initiative that the Air Force has been, um, has been very, you know, encouraging for several years now. And if we can do that, then we're going to sort of eliminate some of the um, evidentiary problems that we see down the road in trials. Uh, we're gonna produce better witness and victim interviews. Uh, and, and then the sort of the second part of that is that the investigators will stay engaged in the cases after that ROI is, is produced and after the case goes to legal and to the commanders for disposition, right? Um, and so the idea is just to create this sort of synergy between legal and between investigators to have a better overall product. Right, so it's sort of like during the investigative process, the JAGs are supporting our investigators and then once the report of investigation is published, the investigators support us in the final disposition of the offense, whether it's a prosecution or whether the investigation reveals that there should be no disposition taken. All right, Major Laney, let me ask you this. So what is our, what are, what are things that practically speaking, your uh, trial counsel or your circuit trial counsel are gonna be able to do as part of a SIP or SFIP capability to assist uh, law enforcement on the front end of those investigations? So there's a lot of legal processes that actually are involved in investigations, quasi-judicial processes and legal advice. So by keeping this cohesive team from the beginning, we're able to provide quick advice on search authorizations, assist with subject interview plans, and hopefully be present for those subject interviews to provide advice, assist in formulation of an investigative plan and interviewing witnesses, and then the additional legal processes of granting immunity for witnesses in cases that, that there's witnesses needing immunity or obtaining investigative subpoenas or court orders to help OSI obtain the evidence that they need as part of their investigation. 
All right. So, and I remember just when I was in a base legal office um, and assisting OSI, maybe by going and watching uh, interviews of either the subject or the victim. Is that something that's still part of, you know, um, I guess, um, viewed to be part of uh, uh, helping out with the investigation or is it, you know, should we be going beyond that? No, I mean, that's absolutely something we should be doing. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned going beyond. And I think that's what's important is we used to have this structure where the investigators would have their investigative plan and we would have our proof analyses. Mm -hmm. And these were two separate things. And really what SIP and ESPIP are aimed at is allowing the integration of that. So for us to advise on the investigative plan to ensure that we're not only discovering evidence of elements, but also assessing whether there's legal defenses which might not be part of a traditional investigative plan. So it's really looking at this, this wholesale investigation with a gear toward the potential of going to a court martial and taking that investigation into the courtroom. And I've talked about um, chapter 22 uh, of, of DAFI 51201 and the requirements that it creates uh, for, for JAGs specifically. Uh, but what about OSI and SFOI? I mean, what if someone out there is watching this and saying, well, all this sounds really nice, but, you know, maybe we don't have an awesome relationship with our, uh, with our OSI or SFOI, and maybe we're not sure about, you know, how willing that they're going to be to, um, you know, to sort of engage enthusiastically in this initiative. Well, Major Bunce, you make a great point, which is that communication and collaboration are a team effort. And we recognize that sometimes that's a struggle. What's fantastic about SIP is this is not something that is just in the 51 series AFIs. So this past spring, there was actually an agreement between JAJ, the commander of OSI, and the commander of SFS to support this SIP capability. And that included a commitment from us to work better with our investigative agencies during the investigation itself. Uh, and we'll discuss what's called cumulative case review in a moment. But it also commits them to support following the investigation. So in every case, your MCIO is going to be critical after the investigation concludes. They maintain the case file. They maintain all real and physical evidence. They assist with discovery and providing discovery to defense counsel. And then of course they produce evidence and testify at courts martial. This agreement also commits them to helping us with any pretrial investigation. Now the goal is to limit the amount of pretrial investigation now, both of these capabilities are meant to be flexible. They're meant to be something that's workable for every base legal office. So a lot of base legal offices have standing SIP teams. So for instance, the Chief of Military Justice and the NCYC of Military Justice may be permanently appointed to a SIP team. And no matter what offense comes in, those are going to be the two people in, uh, involved. And then of course, the investigator, the case agent will change case by case and the CTC may or may not change case by case. Um, with the exception, obviously, that if the Chief of Justice or, or whoever else is on that permanent SIP team are not SBIP qualified, there will have to be some accommodations for SBIP cases. Major Delaney, in addition to the, the folks who are required to be part of the SBIP team, are there other um, personnel who SBIP teams should consult with when necessary, and, and who might those folks be? So in addition to the actual team, for SFIP cases, they're going to be consulting with the Special Victims Council, if one has been appointed, Defense Council, the SARC, if it's a case involving sexual assault, a domestic, a domestic abuse victim advocate, if it's a case involving domestic abuse, and other victim advocates, if there's a victim advocate involved in the case. 
Okay, and could you give us an example of a time that an SIP team might need to consult with a, a defense counsel? Maybe that's not uh, necessarily intuitive to some of our practitioners, why SIP would want to consult with defense counsel. So off the top of my head, I can sort of think of two primary reasons. So one would be if there's a case involving immunization of other witnesses. Presumably those other witnesses have committed some sort of crime or, or could be implicated in a crime. They might have defense counsel. So it's not just defense counsel in your case. It could be other defense counsel. I think what it's really talking about in the regulation, though, is talking about the defense counsel who represents the subject of the offense that triggered ESPIT. And that's where it's sort of counterintuitive, but when we think about it, the subject of these offenses is often a fountain of information as well. He or she also knows a lot about the offense. And there's definitely cases where the subject of the investigation wants to present evidence to investigators. And the way the ESPIT team is going to do that once they're represented is through consultation with defense counsel. So whether that's getting the subject in for an interview after invocation of rights, whether it's uh, consenting to searches or actually providing evidence himself. And might there be a time when you're talking about the actual disposition of an offense when the ESFIT team would, would consult with defense counsel? Oh yeah, absolutely. I was sort of talking about during the investigative phase, but once we reach disposition, Obviously, if the, the legal office or the NAF or the GCMCA is looking at alternative dispositions, plea agreements, anything like that, they're going to be consulting with the defense counsel on those matters. Major Delaney, we've talked a little bit about the origins of the SIP and SIP capabilities and the requirements for those capabilities. But as a current prosecutor, let me just ask you from sort of a practical perspective, uh, why do we want a specialized SDIP capability in the sorts of cases that we've talked about? So there's a few different reasons. There's practical considerations and then there's legal considerations. So first on the, the practical element, there's a lot of unique psychological things to consider when dealing with intimate partner violence and also with child violence. We want to ensure that our prosecutors and our investigators and our paralegals all have the additional training to interact with that population. Then on the legal side, of course, we have different rules of evidence that apply in these sexual cases that don't apply in other cases. So we have military rule of evidence 412, 413, 414, and the constant weighing of a victim's Article 6B rights and privacy rights against an accused due process rights. So there's a lot of additional considerations that come into play in SBIP cases that aren't necessarily implicated by our other criminal offenses. Major Brunson, what is the actual timeline for the activation of the SIP team and the steps they have to take? Sure, and, and so the, the timeline is, again, going to be detailed in Section 22 of DAP 851-201, but in addition to that, uh, uh, this is part of, this will be one of the slides in the, in the presentation that will correspond to this um, refresher. But essentially, we've talked about the triggering event. So within 24 hours of a triggering event, the SJA is going to appoint the, the base JA members. So that's the folks that we've talked about, whether it's the SIP team and that's just any trial counsel and any paralegal or an SIP team that's gonna have to have a qualified and certified trial counsel and a seven level paralegal. So those folks are appointed within 24 hours of the SJA learning of the, uh, the triggering event. And then within 24 hours from that, the SJA is gonna requ uh, request that CTC support, that CTC support should be provided within 72 hours. And so once 
the SJA learns who the, the composition of the entire team is going to be. They have one duty day to actually memorialize uh, in writing that entire team. Um, and that's actually an inspectable item, isn't it? It's actually, yes, it's a, it's a major ins inspection item. Uh, and so once that team is designated, then you're going to have either 48 hours or five duty days to conduct that initial case consultation. And of course, 48 hours if you're talking SFIP, five days if you're talking a SIP case. Uh, those consultations are going to continue weekly uh, until uh, AFOSI or SFOI is within 10 days of the publication of the report of investigation. Uh, they'll give a 10-day notice, and that's when that cumulative case review is going to occur. And then that, that cumulative case review is really a pivotal part of the collaboration. This is the point at which trial counsel should be bringing to the table their proof analysis. And then at this point, OSI and SFOI have committed to providing trial counsel with the entire case file. So this is the point for the JAGs and the case agents to really look over and make sure every investigative lead have been followed. And this is the sort of the last point in the investigation phase for trial counsel to request additional avenues of investigation. So this is the time to ask for additional witnesses to be interviewed, for additional evidence to be collected or tested um, or any other steps. If those requests are not made at that cumulative case review, does that mean that uh, SFOI or OSI doesn't have any more role in the, uh, in the prosecution of the case down the line? Absolutely not. As we said, they've all agreed to provide some investigative support even after publication of the ROI, but it is something that the JAG should be respecting. The sure. entire reason that we have this collaboration is for us to be working on that proof analysis along the way so that when that ROI is published, we're able to immediately provide advice to our commanders on appropriate disposition and then to move forward efficiently and efficaciously. Sure. Um, and when talking about the cumulative case review, so I've, I've talked a lot about the requirements that are actually listed in Section 22 of 201. Is the cumulative case review something that uh, our trial counsel in the field are going to find in 201? It's not, and it's not yet in any SFOI or OSI actual policy memorandums. However, that's part of that agreement, which has been signed by all of the commanders that was made in May of this year. So you mentioned the weekly case consultations. Right. Is there a specific requirement for how those consultations are conducted? Uh, no, actually, the AFI specifically says that the uh, that there's flexibility about how you can accomplish those weekly case consultations. So, uh, for instance, we've all been operating in a very sort of modified way, even for this presentation today. Uh, and so you can accomplish those weekly case consultations, however, it best works for all the parties involved, whether that's uh, in person. Obviously, that's not going to happen a lot because your CTC is normally not stationed there uh, at the same base, but you can do that via phone, uh, BTC, uh, Zoom, um, just however it, it best works. So one thing I do want to add with that, because you mentioned that the CTC is not often at the base, is one of the things that we should all be thinking about when we're using our SIP and SBIP capability is maximizing the use of the CTC when they are on base. So when a CTC is present for motions hearing, even if it's for a different case, it's a great time to do your weekly case consultation. The same thing when they're present for Article 32s or witness interviews or anything, because I think we've all learned over the last year and a half that some things are just easier to do in person than virtually. So you mentioned doing these 
phone call or video teleconference case consultations. Can you also do them via email or text message or anything like that? Sure, and I should have mentioned that. E email is another way to accomplish the, uh, the weekly consultations. Uh, however, when you start to, to talk about uh, uh, communications that are written, via email or text message or whatever you else you, you know you might have, you want to be cognizant of uh, discovery obligations that might come along with that. Uh, and that's where we did want to mention that, um, you know, just because we have these uh, regulatory requirements where we designate these teams as SIF teams or SF teams, that does not change the, the sort of privilege rules that are in play or the confidentiality or the discover, discoverability of these communications. Um, so, uh, even though investigators might be part of a quote unquote team now, uh, you know, our communications with them are still not necessarily uh, uh, protected uh, or, or privileged any more than they used to be. Yeah, that's a really great point because there is no privilege that applies to an investigative agent. Right. And we sometimes waive attorney work product. So, when I've been talking about the proof analysis, it's a great example of how that proof analysis is generally attorney work product and that privilege attaches. And we wanna be bringing those to our consultations with OSI, but we don't necessarily want to provide that proof analysis to them. Because once it becomes part of that case file, it's likely going to be discoverable because of a waiver of privilege. Uh, and I don't want anyone out there to think this means that Major Brunson or I are saying that you shouldn't ever be putting any of these things in writing. It's just something to consider that if an OSI agent during a consultation, for instance, sends an email to everyone on the team summarizing a witness's testimony, there's not a privilege that attaches to that communication. So if you're doing consultations via written or recorded means, just be cognizant of the fact that when that discovery request comes, you need to review those communications as well. Major Delaney, I would sort of suggest that you know, what the field should be obviously most concerned with at this point is what are the current requirements for SIP and SF capabilities um, and, and how to, you know, meet their obligations. Uh, but some folks might be wondering, well, how did we get from these sort of generalized requirements or the generalized mandate from Congress in the 2013 NDAA? And how, how did that progress over time to where, you know, we've really sort of spelled it out in the AFI? Well, so the, the NDAA did not itself actually create the SBIP capability. What it did was it directed the secretaries of each military department to create an SBIP capability. So the congressional statute outlines what needs to be included, but it left it to the services to set up. And then where we went from that was the Secretary of Defense issued the DOTI, which mm -hmm. mirrors almost identically the language from the public law and formally directs each service secretary to create their own capability. So AFI 51201 is the Air Force's implementation of that congressional mandate. So each service is going to use different language, different terminology for the different members of the team. For instance, many of you know that while we have special victims council, the other branches just call them Victims Council. So the Army regulation implementing SBIP is going to be different than the Air Force implementation. Major Delaney, one thing I wanted to ask you about because we talked about uh, SIP and SBIP CTC consultations. Um, so if you have a CTC assigned as part of your SIP team, 
and that case ultimately goes to court, is that CTC going to be your detailed circuit trial counsel for your court martial? No, not necessarily. So ideally, we want to keep the same SIP and S15 throughout the entire process. But as you'll notice in the AFI, every single investigation requires the SIP capability. However, we don't detail CTCs to every single court martial. We just don't have that manpower. So it's possible a different CTC could be detailed to the court or that no CTC could be detailed to the court. And is the same true for the SBIP cases or in those cases, is it even more of a priority to keep those uh, CTCs on the case if it goes to court martial? It's absolutely a bigger priority in our SBIP cases, especially the ones in which the CTC SBU has interviewed the victim in the case and has formed a relationship because that's really a pivotal part of the prosecution. And speaking of CTCs and special um, or CTCs that are assigned to SBIP teams, which can only be SBU CTCs, correct? According to regulation. According yes. to the regulation, right. So um, how does a CTC go from being a circuit trial counsel to being a special victims unit qualified circuit trial counsel? What does that process look like? Because that is also not part of uh, 51201, correct? That's correct. It's not. And it's it's a number of factors that go into it. So SBU designation is given by the chief of JAJG. She's the one who determines when an individual possesses the qualifications and necessary characteristics to be a CTC SBU. And what the chief is always looking at is additional specialized training. So we send all of our CTCs to different trainings, uh, prosecuting special victims offenses and those sorts of things. And then they're also looking at expertise demonstrated in court and a proficiency in working with victims in offenses and complex investigations and prosecutions generally. And um, currently, do you know how many SVU CTCs there are? So out in the field, we currently have 10 CTC SVUs, but that number is always being reevaluated as some of our CTCs uh, request certification as SVUs. And so ideally, amongst those 10 current SVU CTCs, they are consulting on all of the SF cases uh, for the Air Force. So that is, that is definitely the goal that we have. Um, and that's where it's really important for the bases to be notifying us of which cases are SIP cases and which ones are mandatory SBIP cases. And one of the ways some bases do that, which is very helpful to our director of trial operations, is sending SIRS up along with the request. So that way the directors of operations are able to see, is this a special needs case, as opposed to just receiving a notification that some sort of a 120 is going on in the base. So we've talked a lot about the collaborative process that's involved in the SIP and SBIP capability. And we've also spent a lot of time talking about how trial counsel can assist in obtaining evidence. But I want to drill down now and talk both practically about how we do that and then also the legal basis. So we've mentioned investigative subpoenas. What's the legal basis for a trial counsel or a JAG to obtain an investigative subpoena? Sure. So. Um... From, from a statutory starting point, the, the statutory authority for the government to obtain evidence for use in a criminal prosecution is Article 46 of, of the UCFJ. Uh, and you've probably heard about Article 46, you know, essentially every time you do a uh, discovery request or you respond to a discovery request, you're going to see references to Article 46 and to the ability of the uh, defense counsel to 
uh, equally be able to obtain witnesses and, and evidence for courts martial. Uh, but so yeah, Article 46 is ultimately that statutory authority to obtain evidence. And then within the RCMs, uh, where we get into the authorities for investigative subpoenas is in uh, RCM 703. Now, I think we all know and talked ad nauseum about the Military Justice Act, but how did that change and alter Article 46 and the subpoena authority of prosecutors? Right. So uh, previously, pre-MJA 16, one of the reasons that we're talking about this today is because even though this was all implemented on 1 Jan 2019, as we all now know, uh, it's still relatively fresh. And so those enhanced authorities and the enhanced capabilities for prosecutors to go out and obtain evidence, even for use in sort of the investigative phase, that might be something that we're also sort of getting used to. Uh, and it's important to kind of refresh and to talk about that um, in a little bit more detail. So the way to answer your question, Major Delaney, the way that those authorities changed pre-MJA 16 to post-MJA 16 really has to do with being able to issue subpoenas in the investigative phase of, uh, of a case rather than just post-referral. Because if you're someone who's uh, practiced previously and, and maybe you're doing a different job uh, now or, or you know what have you, you might think, well, trial counsel has always been able to issue subpoenas. And uh, to some extent that's true, um, but you're thinking probably of post-referral trial counsel subpoenas where you were able to get you know, certain limited uh, information like criminal electronic communications uh, provider, you might be able to get basic subscriber info through those post-referral investigative subpoenas. Well, now, post-MJA 16, what you're able to do is get that same sort of information just earlier on in the case. Um, and that's what the changes to Article 46 of the UCMJ and RCM 703 allow for. And this is where we need to be proactive with our investigators, too, because they're also used to the old forms of obtaining evidence. So there are still investigators who are reaching out to DODIG to obtain subpoena authority. And that's going to be a way more arduous process than for trial counsel to obtain a subpoena from someone who's been working the case. Now, trial counsel can't just get out the form and sign it, though. There's some additional steps that need to happen before trial counsel can issue the subpoena. So what does trial counsel have to do before they can issue a subpoena? Right. Um, well, first of all, you need to think about what kind of evidence you're, you're trying to get, because that's going to determine whether that trial counsel investigative subpoena is going to be sufficient or whether you might have to go beyond that. We'll talk more about um, some you know, more protected electronic evidence here momentarily. Uh, but as an initial matter, trial counsel needs to realize uh, that you, you don't have that authority inherently. So that authority has to be um, essentially given to a trial counsel from the General Court Martial Convening Authority, uh, or the General Court Martial Convening Authority can delegate that to a special Court Martial Convening Authority. But in any event, that, that that's an authorization that has to be granted to the trial counsel. It's not a uh, it's not an authority that the trial counsel has inherently under the rules. Right, and the rules actually state that the General Court Martial Convening Authority cannot delegate the authority to trial counsel. So Major Brunson mentioned that he can delegate that to a special court martial for the authority, and that's certainly a way to alleviate some of the routing in these cases. So if the GCMCA delegates its authority to authorize subpoenas to an installation commander, for instance, it just gets rid of a level of routing and makes us able to obtain that evidence a little bit faster uh, and easier. So it's something for all of our SJAs to consider in whether they're the commanders that they're advising want to delegate that authority or want to receive that authority if they're advising a lower level commander. Sure, and practically speaking, that 
as you said, Major Delaney, that just makes that, that's all the difference in whether or not that package is going up to a wing commander or a nav commander uh, for all practical purposes. Now, investigative subpoenas can only cover certain things, right? So, subpoena power does not give the authority to require a witness to do an interview. All you can do is subpoena a witness for appearance at a deposition or at an actual court proceeding. This doesn't make it any easier for people to conduct interviews with civilian witnesses. Um, investigative subpoenas are also great for obtaining pieces of real evidence, so physical property. But a lot of things that we want to subpoena have additional privacy protections attached to them. So you mentioned electronic communications. Are there any sort of broad categories um, of information that can't be reached by a subpoena? Sure. So when you're talking about electronic communications, and that's where we're going to spend the, the bulk of uh, this part of the presentation. So electronic communications um, have additional privacy protections depending on um, whether or not we're talking about content, non-content, or basic subscriber info. Uh, and so what you need to remember is that for trial counsel investigative subpoena, the only category of information that you're going to be able to get from uh, an electronic communications service is that basic subscriber info. And so what do we mean by that? Well, suppose you have an eBay account. Um, basic subscriber info is just going to be all of the information that you put into the different data fields when you were signing up for that account. So for me, for instance, you know, it would say name Ryan Brunson, username, and then it would have, you know, date of birth or email address or, uh, you know, physical address uh, that's linked to my account. Um, but we're not talking about messages that I might have sent or received or the, the even the transaction logs of every time I got onto the eBay account or what I may have bought and sold from other users. That's going to be beyond the scope of basic subscriber info, and so you're going to have to consider other uh, means and tools of, of getting that information. That's going to involve additional process uh, beyond just a trial counsel getting that authority from the GCMCA to issue a subpoena. So let's talk a little bit about electronic communications, because there's sort of two ways that we can get electronic communications. One is to get a search authorization or a search warrant, obtain a subject's phone, and then search that phone. But of course, there's cases where that's not within our ability, either because the actual device has been destroyed or we can't unlock it with a passcode or there's been some other destruction of the physical evidence. So how can the how can a military prosecutor or investigator obtain underlying communications other than a search warrant or authorization? Sure. So uh, when we're talking about electronic communications or um, anything more than just basic subscriber information, that really puts us into the realm of the Stored Communications Act. Uh, and this is a good jumping off point because just sort of stepping back, we think of the Stored Communications Act as uh, part of our new authorities post MJA 16. Uh, and so we might think about the Stored Communications Act as some sort of investigative uh, uh, process or investigative tool, uh, but that's not what it is at all. Of course, the Stored Communications Act, which is a statute that was passed first in, in 1984, uh, is actually meant to do the opposite. It's, it's a statute that protects uh, communications and electronic data uh, from uh, governments, uh, from the government being able to obtain that uh, but it, of course, does allow for judicial process. And so the important thing between pre-MJA and post-MJA 16 is that the uh, uh, Military Justice Act of, of 16 
uh, actually designated courts martial and military judges as courts of competent authority to be able to uh, exercise essentially those judicial processes under the Stored Communications Act. And so that's why we can now go to our military judges in Article 38 proceedings to try to avail ourselves of that actual content uh, or other information more than just basic subscriber info. So let's talk about that because there's sort of three categories of information that can be obtained, sure. right? You've talked about basic subscriber and there's non-content and there's content. So what is a non-content Right. So non-content uh, information is not the actual substance of the communications, but it's going to be uh, things more than just the information that the user puts in when they first create the account. So, for instance, to go back to the uh, to an eBay example, um, non-content content information is going to be, OK, how many times and on what dates did this user log into the account and who did they interact with on that platform and potentially what was what was bought and sold, you know, all of that is information that you might want to develop further investigative leads or that might have evidentiary value in a court martial, but you're not actually getting into the substance of communications between two parties. So for instance, different activity on the platform would be non-content. And then content is the actual communication itself, the, the Facebook message between people or the photo and the text in a Snapchat message. Right. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be uh, communications where it goes from one individual to another person. It could just be a communication uh, broadly. So, for instance, if you think about the, your Facebook wall and something you post on a Facebook wall, that is going to be content uh, under the, the uh, Store Communications Act. Or going back to your eBay example the actual photo of the item and the cost of the item for sale. That's the content. That's what's being communicated to other people. Okay, so when we're talking about the Stored Communications Act, what sort of entities actually fall within that? Right, so uh, statutorily, you're going to have two uh, different types of entities. So first being what's called ECS or Electronic Communication Services, and then RCS or Remote Computing Services. So an Electronic Communication Service is essentially just any platform over which you can send and receive messages. So that's phone-based text messaging or any app like Facebook Messenger or Snapchat or Kik or anything uh, where you can send messages to uh, another person. Uh, Remote computing services, essentially, you just need to think of that in terms of the cloud. So Microsoft OneDrive or your uh, Google uh, storage, just anything where you can save um, communications uh, or any other sort of information or data uh, on a cloud server. Now, one important thing to recognize about these entities is they're not required to maintain communications for any set amount of time, right? Sure. So whenever we are looking at third parties, right, these cloud-based platforms, these messaging platforms, one of the things we want to look at is preserving the evidence while we obtain judicial process in order to actually serve a court warrant or order. Right. So once you determine that you're interested in information that's, that's covered under the um, Stored Communications Act, uh, your first thought should be, okay, sending a preservation request, because as Major Delaney said, there's going to be this time period between when you realize that information could be there and is of evidentiary value, and when you're ultimately able to potentially obtain an order or a warrant through a 30A proceeding to get that information. And so 
uh, you don't you, know, you don't need to wait. You should go ahead and, and either through uh, your law enforcement agencies, so through SFOI or OSI, or yourself as the trial counsel, go ahead and issue a preservation request uh, to that SCA entity to preserve that information. And that and that's something they're they're required to do. Uh, however, as Major Delaney also mentioned, is this doesn't change their procedures. So. Uh, for instance, if you have, let's say, Verizon, and Verizon only keeps the content of text messages messages for 14 days, that's not going to require them to alter their policies to now keep that information for longer. It just means that whatever they have at that point that they receive that preservation request, that has to be preserved. And of course, the next question is, well, for how long? Uh, and the answer is 90 days, at which point you can uh, issue a follow-up request or, or an additional request uh, to, to ask them to preserve that for another 90 days. And so ultimately you're talking about if you issue a preservation request, you need to make sure that the judicial process has been accomplished within 180 days, or that entity is gonna be under no obligation to continue to keep that data. And realistically, you usually want it to be even sooner because as Major Brunson note, uh, mentioned, they have to preserve what's already in their storage at the time they receive the preservation request. But if they regularly delete things in 14 days, every message between the date they receive that preservation request and the 14 days after is going to start being deleted. So unless you're going to be sending subsequent preservation requests, you need to be getting the actual court warrant or court order served on the entity in a timely manner so that they haven't deleted any additional messages not covered by the preservation requests. Now, under the SCA, there is some ability for the covered entity to voluntarily disclose information. How often does that actually happen? Well, you shouldn't count on it because that's, uh, that happens very rarely. And, and the reason is, is because there's, again, the SCA, the point of the SCA is to make it to where that these covered entities cannot uh, share this information with the government except through judicial process or in these very limited permissive exceptions. So uh, the permissive exceptions really only apply say, for instance, when the entity is itself a recipient of the message. So if you have Gmail, for instance, I don't know why someone would do this, but if you actually just sent an email to Gmail, uh, then under the SCA, they could permissively uh, release that to the government with the, or, or, or provide that to the government or to a prosecutor without judicial process. Uh, another example, one that we probably run into the most is with uh, NCMEC. So anyone who's ever prosecuted a child exploitation or ICAC or, or a child pornography case, um, you may know that for a lot of these electronic communication providers like, say, Dropbox, or even the recent example where iPhone may start to scan its users' accounts for contraband. Uh, but some of these Stored Communications Act entities are able to permissively turn over to the government uh, any information about NCMEC hits that are found on their servers. Now, that doesn't mean that everything else within that folder or that communication is also going to be disclosed. So a NCMEC hit alone is probably not going to be enough in your case. Now, we've been talking about these investigative subpoenas and we've been talking about court orders in the investigative phase. Isn't there a concern that the subject of an investigation could find out about these court orders? Sure, and the, uh, the rules for courts martial um, account for that. And so what you'll see in, in RCM 703A, which is the, the rule that, that implements essentially the process for us to be able to obtain 
these orders and warrants through an Article 38 process is that it also talks about non-disclosure orders. Uh, and so when you actually, when you apply for an order or warrant from a military judge uh, to obtain information under the SCA, a part of what's going to be on that form is uh, essentially a block to annotate about whether or not you're also requesting a non-disclosure order. And a non-disclosure order prevents the covered entity, prevents the electronic communication service or the uh, remote computing service from notifying the subscriber uh, that their information is being sought, which is something that most entities are going to do reflexively if they get this kind of order or warrant, unless there's also the non-disclosure order. Uh, and those non-disclosure orders, there's a list in 703A of reasons why you can ask for a non-disclosure order. And trial counsel is going to need to be able to articulate in the warrant or order application uh, what reason justifies the entity not uh, notifying the subscriber. And going along with that, just as uh, after a search warrant is executed or a search authorization is executed, the, um, the, the owner of the premises or the owner of the property is going to receive a copy of that search warrant. The same is sort of true with SCA orders and warrants, where at the end of any sort of non-disclosure period, uh, they are going to be notified of of when uh, what's in the application um, and and what information was uh, sought, what information was turned over by that covered entity. I think it's also important to mention that we're filing these applications via email. Generally speaking, these aren't 39A sessions that are held in court. The Article 30A session is a submission of an application via email. So those also need to be maintained not only for discovery purposes, but they're also mandatory to be included in the record of trial. Major Laney, for investigative subpoenas, court orders, warrants, we've talked about all of those so far within the context, essentially the prosecution of a, of a case uh, before our defense community out there. Is there a way for defense counsel to avail themselves of these same resources or these same tools? So not under the statute of the RCM themselves. These are tools that are limited to trial counsels submitting the affidavits or law enforcement. Now, the one caveat to that is, of course, we talked earlier about how prosecutors have to consult as necessary with defense counsel throughout the SIP and SFIP capability. And one thing that defense counsel can do is they can request the trial counsel issue the subpoena or request a court warrant or order. Of course, in order to do that, they're going to have to disclose a little bit of strategy and they're going to have to meet the standards under the RCM to obtain that investigative process. And then does the trial counsel have the discretion at that point to decide whether or not they, they do want to initiate that 38 proceeding to get an order or warrant? Yeah, I mean, it really is discretionary on that prosecutorial function because there is no ability for the defense counsel to go vis-a-vis direct to either the GCMCA for authorization or to the military judge. So we've talked a little bit about the Article 30A process. Mm -hmm. How is that actually initiated? Sure. So uh, the initiation of an Article 38 process is going to be via a memorandum from the trial counsel to the central docketing office. Uh, that requests that a military judge be detailed for the purposes of a 30A. Uh, and that, that, that docketing request essentially is also going to include information about whether or not the government's going to request a non-disclosure order. Uh, it's going to uh, include a request about, um, or it's going to include a note about whether or not the government is, uh, how many applications essentially that the government is going to be 
uh, submitting to the military judge during the 30A and how many warrants or court orders that the government is looking to issue. Is there also an ability to ask that this be an ex parte hearing that defense counsel not be involved? Right. And that's going to be a standard part of that uh, central docketing office request. And I think we may have mentioned previously that these 30A proceedings um, typically are and can be ex parte in, in camera for obvious reasons, because you may not have all the parties appointed yet. Uh, and in, in the case of a court order for um, an investigation for some information under the SCA, it's not even necessary that you have a known subject necessarily at that point. Uh, and so typically these uh, proceedings are in camera and ex parte, um, but you still do need that uh, request to the uh, the CDO. So once there's actually a military judge detailed the Article 38 proceeding, what does a trial counsel have to submit in support of their application? Well, you should think of this as essentially either motions practice or um, essentially the same process as getting a search authorization. So it's not just a proffer is not good enough. A proffer would never from trial counsel would never be good enough in a, in a motions hearing or a proffer from an OSA agent would never be good enough uh, to get a, a search authorization. So what you actually are going to need uh, is you know specific and articulable facts uh, and sworn evidence or testimony uh, from law enforcement agents, just the same as you would in a search authorization. Uh, and when you actually make the application, which the application is, is going to be on an Air Force form uh, 3057, when you actually make that application for part of as part of the 38 proceedings, you're going to attach to that all of the necessary evidence and sworn affidavits. Yeah, and I think one of the important things is the same way in a search authorization process, the judge may have questions. They may need more facts articulated. They may want more particularity in the affidavit or the sworn statement. Just because a judge has these additional questions doesn't mean the process is, is over. Trial counsel can amend the application. They can reach out to the agent. Uh, and if the agent has additional information, can include that incorporated into the affidavit and continue that proceeding on. And just like with a, we've talked about warrant, we've talked about an order, uh, what we uh, need to talk about is the different standards that apply to, to each of these tools. Um, and there's a, uh, there's a helpful chart that kind of compares the different standards and the corresponding uh, slideshow to this refresher. But uh, essentially, you're going to have uh, three different standards that, that escalate as you go from investigative subpoena uh, to a warrant. And of course, for the investigative subpoena, whether that's issued by a court or by a trial counsel, uh, that is going to issue under the same standard uh, as, as anything else under 703. So relevant and, and necessary. Is that evidence that you're seeking to obtain relevant and necessary for an ongoing investigation? Uh, for a court order where you need more than just that basic subscriber information, but not necessarily content, that standard is a little bit higher. And that's going to be, um, you're going to have to show specific articulable facts uh, that the evidence being sought is both relevant and material for an ongoing investigation. Uh, and then the standard that we're most familiar with for a warrant is going to be the same as a search warrant or a uh, search authorization, where you're going to need to have probable cause that there's evidence of a crime located within that information to be sought. And those are the standards that the military judge are looking to in determining whether they will grant your request or not.
Major Delaney, I want to talk uh, for a moment about a, a hypothetical sort of illustrating some of these different tools and the different standards at play and what you would use the different uh, investigative tools for. So, supposing we have a uh, internet crimes against children case where, um, you know, you may have communications between an offender and uh, someone posing as a, as a child. Um, but suppose you had another victim in that case that you've been able to identify, but you're not able to get those messages uh, between the the uh, offender and the, the victim. Um, how would we use, let's say, an investigative subpoena in a case like that just to initially draw some links or further investigative leads? Well, sure. So one thing is chances are the subject is using a pseudonym on whatever platform he's using to engage with the ICAC agent. So we need a way to, to tie our military subject to that pseudonym. So the basic subscriber information via an investigative subpoena will help us make that initial link between the pseudonym on the kick or Facebook Messenger, whatever he's using, and the individual subject. And just to review, is that something that a, a trial counsel can do, or is it something we need to go to the court for with the 38 proceeding? So either the GCMCA uh, or his delegate can authorize trial counsel to issue an investigative subpoena for that, or an investigative subpoena can be obtained through a military judge. Okay. Uh, and what might be, in this hypothetical, what might be the sort of information that we would need to know that's beyond basic sub subscriber information, uh, but not necessarily yet the content of those communications? Sure. So even if we now know that's his account, we still need to establish that he's the individual at the computer sending the messages. And one way we can do that is by getting non-content information that would be his accessing chat logs or logging into the application. And then that gives us a time frame at which we can track whether he had access to the computer at that time or not. And that's something we can do via a court order? That's correct. Yeah. Right. Through an Article 80, uh, 38 proceeding? 38 proceeding, but trial counsel could not get that via an investigative subpoena alone. And if we got that information through a court order, what would be uh, essentially the showing that we would have to make in order for a judge to issue that order? So you have that, you still need particular facts, articulable reasons to show that that information is going to be relevant material to your investigation. Okay. And then finally, to get the actual content of those communications, so that you know the evidence of the crime itself, uh, what's what's the tool we could use to do that? So that's where we're going to go all the way up to a court order if we're trying to get that cloud-based or messenger third-party based information. To a court, a warrant. A warrant, right, exactly. I mean, there's there's the Fourth Amendment warrant, which we could seize his computer and search his computer, but under the Stored Communications Act, we can also get a warrant to serve upon the third-party provider. And when we apply for, or when the, you know, our law enforcement agent applies for that warrant, um, what other things should we be, we, should we be thinking about in terms of disclosure and preservation of that evidence? Absolutely. So that's one of the considerations between whether we want the warrant under the SCA or a search warrant and seizing his computer is if you're doing the cloud-based data service, you want to use a preservation request immediately. We want to do a non-disclosure order along with our request. We want to see if we can get those communications without the subject being aware. Um, Major Delaney, before we uh, close today, uh, any sort of final thoughts about these uh, topics that you'd like to share from a, from a JHAG prosecutor's perspective? Absolutely. So we talked a lot about these investigative processes and nobody is alone working on these. 
you should be consulting with your CTC at all times. They have access to all of the JAJG resources. And additionally, if you just on your own want to look up more, we have lots of information on the Stored Communications Act, on the processes for obtaining investigative subpoenas and warrants. All of that is on our KM site, along with samples, templates, um, just a lot of really valuable information to assist bases in these investigative phases. And I guess, Major Brunson, I'll throw it back to you. Any final thoughts you would like people to know from a JAJM perspective? Sure. I, I would just say, um, in, in the attached uh, PowerPoint that's going to correspond to this refresher, uh, we'll give you a lot of this information, but uh, we always try to make folks aware and, and make better use of the virtual military justice desk book. A lot of the templates, uh, the forms for these different processes uh, can be found there as, uh, as well as the uh, things like the, the template for the memo to the central docketing office to request a 30-day proceeding. Uh, and I've, I've harped several times today on Section 6 and 22 of AFI 51201, but that's where you can find all the really detailed guidance and the actual no kidding base level requirements uh, to not only understand these SIP and SDIP processes and the 30A proceedings, but also to make sure that you're complying with all of the, uh, the Air Force regulations. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. One of the best ways you can support this publication is by following or subscribing the show and leaving us a rating. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil podcasts. We welcome your feedback. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of its guests and hosts. For those JAGs who listen to this refresher for certification purposes, be sure to navigate to the certifications page under the Management Systems drop-down on flight. On that page, mark the appropriate radio button corresponding to your status and requirements. Thank you.